thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Cape Talk, the world of science with Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist. And uh, he is wearing clothes, I assume. Chris Smith, good morning. How are you? Hi, Jeremy. I'm I'm in good shape. (laughs) This is a regular feature. It's time for the Naked Scientist. Uh, It's a highlight for anyone standing in, especially for me, because I've listened to it before. And I'm always highly entertained. But I I walk away uh, informed and educated about science. So you know the drill. Call us with your science question. Uh, Dr. Chris Smith is on standby for your calls right now on 021-446-0567. Your text and voice note messages to 072-567-1567. So you return from America. Hence the jet lag, uh, uh, Chris, uh, where you attended a conference and you ran into a South African contingent. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was at Bio. This is the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. This is a huge organization, actually, that represent more than 30 countries and in both industries, academics and other initiatives in those countries. And it champions their cause and provides them with a forum. And annually, there's a very big meeting which is uh, this year in Philadelphia. It's just finished in the US, but they alternate between the East Coast and the West Coast of the US. So next year it's going to be in San Diego. But countries and also organisations and companies send representatives to this meeting. And the I think the headcount was about 18,000 people there. It was absolutely huge. But I went into this room, which can only really be described as on par with an aircraft hangar in terms of size. And this is where all the pavilions and the various entities were representing themselves. And, of course, I walked in and turned right, made my way right along to the top right corner because there was this lovely stand from my favourite country, from South Africa. And and so it's amazing how many people listen to the programme. And so there were all these people coming onto the South Africa stand and and they were saying, well, can I ask a question? Because I struggled to get through on the telephone. So I got my phone out and I have recorded some of them. So we have a small snapshot and we can work out where we've got. I've got a couple for you, which I thought were just some really nice, interesting questions, which which we can listen to if you'd like to. Yes, please. Let's do that. Well, let's start with uh, ladies first, I think. This actually is Cara. So we actually went to a party after the main meeting of the day, which was hosted by South Africa. And so I started doorstopping some people in the street as well. Hi, my name is Kara, and we're on the Kamek Street in downtown Philadelphia, the South Africa reception at Bio. My question is, why, when you're nervous, do you get butterflies and a tingly feeling in your stomach? Now, that is a good question, isn't it? You must admit. And the reason for that is because your stomach and your intestines in general are controlled by your vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve comes down from the brain stem, which connects your spinal cord to your brain properly. And the vagus nerve turns on and turns off your intestines. It's part of what's called the parasympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system, the part of the nervous system that takes care of all the things you don't have to think about taking care of. Now, when you get nervous, the part of your autonomic nervous system that's involved in running away, gearing up to fight, or thinking quickly, how do I, how do I escape from this situation, that powerfully turns on, and the part that's concerned with resting and digesting, the parasympathetic arm, 
turns off. So when you get very, very excited or nervous or worried about something, you powerfully disinhibit or you powerfully inhibit your parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve that's normally turning on your intestines in your stomach turns off. Mm -hmm. You relax all the muscles in your intestines, including your stomach, and so your intestines stop working and it produces that sinking twitching feeling in your abdomen because you're diverting resources away from your abdomen and into your muscles you don't want to be diverting huge amounts of blood and resources into digesting lunch when you could be using those resources to run away or to fight with someone and that's why nerves which turn off the parasympathetic nervous system and turn on the sympathetic nervous system make you feel like that now it makes sense why i feel the way i do before i come on air Whenever I do. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. But a little bit of a stress is really good because it makes you, it, right. it's, it's that interplay between enough to make you uh, vigilant and just mm-hmm. thinking enough on edge that you're going to be thinking the right way about, mm, how do I make sure I make this sound really good or I'm, I'm listening carefully to what people are saying and I'm not feeling too relaxed and sleepy. But obviously if you overactivate the system, then you can become very, very nervous and it can compromise your performance, which is why someone who's actually become quite well trained before any sort of events, sporting events, exams, that kind of thing, you're getting that interplay just about right. Enough stress to make you feel galvanised into action, but not too much that it then starts to produce these other symptoms, which can be performance deleterious a regular on the show it's dr chris smith all your science related questions feel free to give us a call brian in strand good morning good morning jeremy good morning chris hi brian um question for you chris um they say that sugar is bad for you they say that honey is good for you is the sugar and honey different from the sugars like table sugar fruit sugar and that sort of thing um, I'll listen on the radio. Thanks. The answer is that the composition of honey is much more complicated than just sugar and much more complicated than just the sugar you see in a sugar bowl on the table. The composition of honey is a mixture of carbohydrates, sugars. They've also got proteins in there from the pollen that the bees collected and some of the other things that were in the flowers. And that's why honey has a colour and that's why honey also has a flavour. When you have white table sugar, this is by this is chiefly sucrose. This is very, very sweet, which is why we like it, but it's highly refined and highly pure. And as a result, it is a very quick accessible source of energy so when you eat that it just gets broken down in your intestine into into small sugar molecules simple subunits that could be very rapidly absorbed into the circulation which is why it produces a very rapid sugar rush honey is very sugary and it will produce a similar sugar rush but it's not as not as simple and refined as the sucrose that you get so one could argue that honey is probably a bit better for you because there are other things in there um and and i would probably prefer to put that on my toast and just sprinkle boring old granulated sucrose but Like all these things, it's down to everything in moderation. So if you have too much of anything, it's not a good thing. A little bit, and that's not going to do you any harm, probably. Uh, Going to your WhatsApp messages coming in this morning. Hi, Jeremy and Chris. It's winter, and I wake up to foggy mornings. We always say that the fog lifts in. Is that just an expression, or is that actually what happens when it clears up? And that comes from Dominique. Good morning, Dominique. Well, where does fog come from? Well, fog is water vapour. And the reason we have a foggy day is because when you evaporate water, it turns into small numbers of water molecules floating around in the air. And when you cool down the air, those water molecules have sufficiently little energy that they can begin to get close to each other and link up. And they link up from being individual molecules 
to clusters of molecules, in other words, droplets. And these small droplets uh, then scatter light, which is why you see a, a white fog, because they're scattering light back at you. The reason that the fog comes down, we say, is that what happens as the day gets towards its end and the temperature drops is that the temperature of the air close to the ground begins to fall below the point at which the water molecules can be kept separated. In other words, the temperature at which they can begin to come close together again and form these droplets. When we talk about fog lifting, what's actually happening is that the air temperature is going up again and this means that you can begin to disperse these droplets because you give them enough energy that the water molecules part from each other and instead of forming droplets, they actually form individual evaporated water molecules that scatter in the air and they're no longer capable of scattering light back at you. We tend to say the fog lifts because what generally happens is that as the sun burns off or warms up the the fog and evaporates it off, you're going to see, instead of this being very close to the ground you're just going to see this slowly disappear off and so we talk about the fog lifting and you can begin to see the sky again so it's almost like pulling the sheet off of something or unshrouding something. Catherine in Campsbay. Good morning Catherine, your question. Good morning. Um, I want to know if there's any real way of improving one's long-term and short-term memory besides taking Jinka Biloba and all that stuff which I'm not sure whether actually that works. Yes, good morning Catherine. Uh, The answer to this is that you can improve your memory by practice and there's not really an evidence that supplements are going to do your memory much good unless you have a specific deficiency. People who get, for instance, deficient in some B vitamins can have a loss of memory function. And also if you get tired, you're poorly nourished or you're, uh, for instance, anemic, this can also lead to poor brain function because you're just not very well nourished and you haven't got enough oxygen getting into your brain. So if we put to one side eating at what we would regard as a generally healthy diet and you're otherwise in generally good health, doing other things like not smoking is incredibly important. Smoking is is very bad for your brain function and it tends to cause a loss of brain function and is strongly associated with things like small vessel disease and Alzheimer's disease. So it's a good idea never to smoke. So that's that's some simple things that you can do. In terms of things you can actually practice to improve memory, you can learn various tricks and techniques that, that enable you to remember things things better and if you talk to the professionals who actually do this uh, for example uh, on stage as a stunt you know memory tricks and things they would describe how they've very in a very disciplined way taught themselves to when they want to remember something they link that thing in either a, a sort of visual story in their mind or they find various hooks into the subject for instance when you're introduced to somebody it's very easy to shake their hand go oh hello Catherine and then you completely forget their name five seconds later and then you're going, hmm, this person I'm now talking to, I'm really embarrassed because I can't remember their name. The, the, the people who have developed these sort of tricks, what they'll do is they'll make sure that they repeat the name back to themselves several times or they'll say to the person, oh, yes, Catherine, that's a very nice name, for example. And by doing that, you remind yourself what it is and you go through this routine and it plants these things in your memory. So it's using a similar sort of technique in other aspects of everyday life. You, you can improve memory. And as I say... Improving your overall health means you will improve your brain health because what goes for the rest of your body goes for your brain as well. So and keeping your brain in tip-top condition is going to result in it lasting as long as it possibly can and also working as better as the best it can. Chris, here's a question I haven't thought of before coming through on the WhatsApp line this morning. How much does the earth weigh? <laughs> uh, the earth weighs 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. So in other words, 6 followed by 21 zeros, tons. Okay. 
I mean, strictly speaking, weight <laughs> weight is a slightly dodgy way of saying it. We should say the mass of the Earth, uh, because that's actually right. physically how much stuff is in there. How do we know that, I suppose, would be the logical follow-up? Because it was Archimedes that said, give me a lever long enough and a place far enough away to stand and I could lift the Earth. We know the mass of the Earth because we know roughly what the planet's made of. We know uh, where we are in the solar system. We know how fast we're going around the sun. And we also know the influence we have on other nearby bodies of which we know the mass, like the moon. And so we can use those relationships to calculate the approximate mass of our Earth based on what we know is inside it, and silica, aluminium being the dominant things, for example. And that's how scientists have arrived at that rough approximation, which is, which is probably pretty accurate, which is right. 6 times 10 to the 24 yeah. kilograms. It is uh, 10 minutes before 10 o'clock. This is Jeremy van Veek. I'm chatting to uh, Chris Smith, uh, who is the naked scientist. Do fish need to drink water, even if they are in it the whole time? It comes from Keith. The answer is it depends. If you're a fish that lives in freshwater, then... When you're in freshwater, your problem is that your body contains a stronger solution than the water around you, so water's always trying to make its way into your body. So freshwater-dwelling fish have evolved mechanisms to keep that water out and to lose excess water. If you're a fish that lives in the ocean, then you have the reverse problem. The ocean is a much stronger solution than your body fluids, so water is trying to leave your body to get into the ocean to balance things out. So fish who live in the ocean have the reverse strategy, which is that they have ways of concentrating water in their body and stopping themselves losing water. It depends, therefore, where you live and how you're adapted to your environment, which of those two things you do. There are some fish, though, that can do both. For instance, salmon, which start life in a river, they make their way out to sea, and then they make their way back up the river to breed. Mm. They have evolved various clever strategies so they can switch this metabolism, and as they migrate, they will change how they regulate water and water balance in their body. The metabolism in the body, though, produces, as a byproduct, lots of water. When I eat sugar, for example, C6H12O6, which is glucose, and I burn that with oxygen, 6O2, I turn that into six molecules of CO2, carbon dioxide, plus I get molecules the same amount of water, six molecules of water. And so as a result, I'm basically, uh, by, by eating and burning energy in my body, producing water as a byproduct. So a lot of the water that we have in our body comes from the breakdown of the energy that we've taken into our body. So we only drink to make up for what are called insensible losses because there is water being lost from our body all the time. For instance, in breath, you, you lose about half a litre of water in just normal day-to-day breathing. And also you excrete water in what goes down the toilet every day. And so that comes to a litre or two of, of insensible losses every day, which we make up for by drinking but the rest of the water, that comes from the food and also it comes from uh, breaking down food as molecules of sugar, for example, in our cells. Here's a lovely one. Dear Doc, why does weed make some of us, weed makes some of us very creative? It comes from Anzil Adams. Right, well, the thing is with this is that different drugs affect different people differently. What we dub weed is, is a plant, but that plant contains many, many chemicals and they're all in different amounts and they all have different effects. And because everyone's different, if you take a different combination of chemicals in 
different bunch of people being affected in a different way because we're all different inside, you're going to see subtly different effects one person to the next. There'll be some broadly similar effects from one person to the next, and it's good that there are because when we, for instance, give people drugs in order to treat diseases, we've tested those drugs on a range of people so we roughly know how they work. But that's not to say there aren't side effects and some drugs work better in some people than others. And it's no different with things like cannabis, which is pretty much the same story. You've got a range of chemicals working in a range of people who are all different. So you're going to see different effects. Good morning, Jeremy and Dr. Chris. The question is, uh, I would like to ask is, if any research is being done on nerve ending for people uh, who have had strokes? Well, people who have a stroke, the reason we have a stroke or the thing referred to as a stroke is where there's been damage to nerve tissue, specifically the central nervous system, caused by a supply problem of blood because the brain and brain tissue has some of the highest metabolism in the body. It's so dependent on the supply of oxygen that if you deprive it of that supply of oxygen for just a very short time, it begins to damage tissue irreversibly. And when you damage brain tissue, unlike, say, if I scratch my skin or cut part of myself, it can't regenerate. It scars and it seals up the damage, but it doesn't replace the cells and the tissue that have been lost. And for this reason, strokes are permanently disabling, although we can help people by rehabilitating them and giving them things like physiotherapy. And what we're training people to do under those circumstances is although the part of the brain that may have been damaged by the stroke and and you've lost that tissue, because the nervous system can rewire itself, it is possible through intensive training and, and things like physiotherapy to strengthen the connections which were weakly there in other brain areas um, and to use those connections to bypass the damage which has been caused by the stroke. So you can achieve some degree of functional recovery and it will vary from one person to the next according to age makes right. a difference, compliance with the physiotherapy makes a difference, the scale or extent of the damage makes a difference. But you can achieve something and we can achieve a reasonable improvement in quality of life. What scientists are looking at into the future is that if we know someone is about to have a stroke or having a stroke or has just had a stroke, can we go in with various chemicals or other treatments and prevent the loss of the nerve cells that's about to happen. Can we do that? Scientists are working on strategies to do that. And downstream of that, they're also working on strategies to put back in the nerve cells that have been lost, hopefully to restore some of the loss function in the future. Uh, I need a very quick answer to this question because I know a lot of people would like to know if this works or not. Chris, is it really true that youth creams for the face can help make someone look younger? (laughs) Well, looking younger and actually the skin not ageing as fast. They're two slightly different phenomena, aren't they? Because if you put makeup on or you or you have Botox and things, you can make yourself look younger, but this is a temporary fix. The best thing is to reduce your skin ageing rate in the first place. And the worst way to age your skin, there are two toxic things for skin. Number one is actually smoking. And people have done studies where if you show people random faces and uh, and say, does this person smoke or not? You can get it right just by looking at how old they look. And smoking is one of the fastest ways to accelerate skin ageing, so don't smoke. The other one is the sun. Ultraviolet breaks down elastin and collagen, which are the two key proteins that give skin its texture, thickness, turgor and elasticity. And as you age, you tend to lose those. Skin creams can cover up some of this stuff. There are very few that actually have any effect. There was one that was tested a few years ago that contains low levels of retinoids, which are vitamin A-like chemicals, and they do have the effect of slightly increasing some of these substances, including collagen and elastin, and can therefore put back some of the youthful vigour of skin 
But again, it's better not to have that problem in the first place if you can avoid aging your skin. But that there right. is weak evidence that some of these skin creams can work. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.